expressed in this podcast did not necessarily reflect the view of Wolfpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. The listener should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions. Welcome to the Wolf Den, everybody. This is Dan David coming back at you with the I Hung Up on Warren Buffett podcast. I might not be the only person on this uh, on this podcast. <laughs> Today we have David Sokol with us, a huge success from years at Berkshire Hathaway. As everybody remembers, he was the heir apparent before he decided to go start his own firm, Teton Capital. Mr. Fix-It. Mr. Fix-It, that's right. He's currently chairman of the board of Atlas Corp, ATCO ticker, which is flying these last couple weeks, by the way. Congratulations on that, David. Well, thank you. And the uh, former chairman and CEO of NetJack, Inc. People will remember Mr. Fix-It came into NetJets with a $150 million operating loss and turned it around in two years to a $200 million gain. David, welcome to the show. Congratulations on your new book as well, American Perspective, Defending the American Dream for the Next Generation. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. There's a lot to talk about here. I know that there are a lot of themes in your book that I want to talk about that are, that are really great because it's, in my opinion, very bipartisan. It's not pandering to a Republican or a Democrat. It's kind of getting back to America. It's okay to be proud that you're an American, right? Absolutely, 100%. And I appreciate you making that point because my complete intention was to make it nonpartisan. That's the way I see it. As we talk about how it's okay to be proud of your country still, you know, flaws and all, warts and all, you're not one to say that we're doing things perfectly or we always have or whatever. You're more, you're more talking about how we tend to heal. It's time for us to do that. But 38% of Americans think that we are a great country or, you know, are proud to be an American? Is that where we're at? Well, that's what some of the polls show. Let, let me give you a statistic just from this weekend. I was speaking to 400 recent graduates and it was uh, across the board. It was uh, probably half minority in the sense of uh, African-Americans, Hispanic, Asians, and then uh, roughly half, uh, half white. They went to college all over the country. They, they all didn't go to the same school. The only thing that brought them together was a scholarship program. And so anyway, it was a really interesting. I started the conversation about eight o'clock. I only spoke for, say, 20 minutes and then took questions. I didn't get back to my hotel room till after midnight. Wow. Um, yeah, that sounds young, right. Yeah. And these are young people that are not all conservatives by any stretch of the imagination. They focused on, kept asking questions about the founding fathers. And I, I'd made a point to them that you know, the founding fathers had three things going for them when they established this country. One was that they had been around, most of them, since kind of the mid-1700s. And they had seen the economy grow in the colonies at a pace places back in Europe weren't seeing. And they recognized that at that, you know, in the 1750s, 1760 timeframe, the British Empire really wasn't being very tyrannical over the colonies. And frankly, they largely ignored them. And therefore, there wasn't any regulation or taxation in the colonies, and people got to do what they wanted to do. They didn't have to ask the king or a prince or somebody how to, you know, what they would be allowed to do. 
So they saw that. They said, wow, this human potential getting unleashed is kind of amazing. Then secondly, they had the advantage of then seeing the, the tyrannical nature of the British Empire come down and say, wow, these colonies are making quite a bit of money. We need to regulate them and tax them. Oh, by the way, without any representation. Mm -hmm. And they also then had the benefit of being children of the Enlightenment, and they were seeing other forms of government around the world. And a famous book by, by Mr. Smith was written, The Wealth of Nations. So there was this combination of them looking at this group of human beings that had left Europe and saying, you know what, we need to get rid of the British Empire and have our own country. The key to that is they established the first country in the history of the world that was based upon the citizenry of that nation. You know, we the people, government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And today, folks are losing sight of that. That essence of what they did, they did not want to be ruled by an elite class, a monarchy, or a dictator, is what made America the most extraordinary country ever developed on the face of the earth. Now, having said that, it started with flaws. You know, slavery is an inexcusable reality back then, but it wasn't invented in America. Slavery goes back to, to the first, first documentation of any history of, of the planet, so back several thousand years, and it exists today in many countries. Mm -hmm. And actually, the sex slave activity is perhaps even more insidious. Mm -hmm. But the point is, slavery was not an option for them. They had two things they had to figure out. Do we live with slavery because it exists, this being back in the 1770s, 1780s, or do we stay under British rule? And by the way, the British rule wasn't doing anything to eradicate slavery. So slavery was going to be around. They knew that. But they knew they couldn't form. They couldn't get all 13 colonies together to fight the Revolutionary War. They fought the Revolutionary War starting in 1775. They signed the Declaration of Independence, a really remarkable document in 1776. But the war went on until 1783. A lot of people don't realize is, and this is what these students got very interested in, the Constitution wasn't completed and ratified till 1789, six years after the Revolutionary War ended. And these are college graduates? <laughs> yeah. And, okay. uh, and the founding, father, you know, founding fathers took many years to draft this Constitution. And one of the key concepts in the Constitution is consensus. Mm -hmm. It takes three quarters of the states to ratify an amendment to the Constitution. Yeah. They wanted it to be rock solid. They did not want any group, one side or the other, to dictate. They didn't want large population centers to dictate outcomes, et cetera. It's the reason they gave two Senate seats to every state, even though the population would be very different. But the population is represented by the House of Representatives. All of those checks and balances were thought about and argued about for years. It was that kind of discussion that I really found fascinating that these college graduates, they all admitted that, you know, our high school really didn't teach any of that anymore. You know what? Mine did. Yeah. I do think there's a potential and a hope that the American citizenry will start recognizing. And I think the more dumb things that this administration does, like student debt forgiveness, not that that in its concept is necessarily horrible. But the same group asked me, they said, are you, are you opposed? I said, well, let me ask you a question. What if the president had come out and said, instead of I'm going to forgive half a trillion dollars in debt, that, boy, the country's having a tough time. I need to raise your interest rate 2%. Would you be good with that? Immediately, a young man right in front of me said, well, we have a contract. You can't do that. And I said, well, you're right. You have a contract, but he can't do either of those things under our constitution. <laughs> he does not have legislative authority from Congress to give away a half a trillion dollars. It's purely a gimmick. 
after the election, or once the Supreme Court is asked to deal with this, they'll point out it's unconstitutional. You know, it's that type of thing that we're not used to as a society, which is leaders just intentionally misleading us. And the president knows full well, he said over a year ago, he knew he couldn't do this. Uh, I think he might, he might have forgotten, David. That, that does happen with him. <laughs> it does. That is uh, Was it a on very... a cue card? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're obviously a student of history. I find a lot of great business people are. And you talk about some of our original ethos, you know, America for the people, by the people. And taxation without representation is one of the reasons that we broke away from England. I could make the case that, number one, right now I see more of it, America for me. What are you doing for me? Not by the people, for the people, not a sacrifice, but are you going to forgive my student loans? Are you going to subsidize all the things that I want to do? Are you going to snap your fingers and make our country green? I mean, we all want a cleaner planet, but they just want things like a video game very, very fast. And I'm, yeah, I'm talking to the 20 and 30 year olds and I don't, I don't really give a shit if you don't like it. I could also make the case that we have taxation without representation right now. I know I feel like I do. You make a good point. That, you know, using this example, I mean, this, this me, you know, what's in it for me mentality. When you slide, start sliding towards socialism, you realize that you can never give anybody enough. But what you don't realize is that you're taking away the self-respect that people have, et cetera. And while it feels good to get something, just like a couple of these students thought it was great that they could get $10,000 of their loan taken away. That's good, if you will. But you also have to think about, A, is it right? And B, what are the larger you know, contexts here? We, we don't have that today. It comes from somewhere. It's supposed to. Yeah, no, no, that's right. And it's not free. Remember, every, everything's free, but not to those that are paying the taxes. But a good example, though, of these, of these giveaway things that, that people need to pay attention to, because I actually personally, and I think you probably do as well, I care about underprivileged kids that find themselves trapped in a welfare system that isn't doing them any good. So if we go back and look at the New Deal, the whole premise behind our welfare system, and we try to point this out in the book, was a helping hand. You're down on your luck, right. and it was going to reduce poverty in America. But the reality today is the percentage of people in our country, even mm. though our population is much bigger than it was in the 60s, the percentage of our population that lives in, in a level of poverty is higher today than when we started the welfare system. A good portion of that is because our welfare system traps people. It's not a helping hand. It's a right. lifestyle. It, and, that's, and that's never what it was supposed to be. There's supposed to be a time in and a time out. And both Democrat and Republican congressmen, everyone I've ever spoken to know that. Right. But it's a political game for them. I think the way we get around some of this stuff is we've got to get people paying attention to who they vote for mm -hmm. and then holding them accountable. I've supported congressmen in my career that uh, totally misled this is what I'm going to do. You know, I believe in this. These are my principles. They get elected. They sort of do it the first term and then the second term. Suddenly I'm getting these. Well, David, I know I told you that was what I thought, but you have to understand this is complicated. And uh, I'm only going to vote you don't against understand complicated issues. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like I don't, <laughs> corporations don't have to deal with complications. And pretty soon they're telling you one thing and doing another. And I just made it an absolute criteria for me, at least for my vote and for any, any contributions, people have to do what they say. If they don't, then okay, that's, that's on them, but I don't have to vote for me. We need to get people back into the game because the, the one thing that we should all be concerned with is the founding fathers established this government of the people. And remember, we're citizens. We're not subjects. President Biden talks to us like we're his subjects. 
but it takes participation. And if people aren't going to pay attention, we will lose this, this extraordinary country. I want to talk about the politics of it and how we can start to fix it. And I ask an idea or two from you, but you being the management specialist that you are, the turnaround specialist that you are, going in and working with a team, what's the difference that you see between today and 20 years ago with a workforce? Could you do some of the things you did 20 years ago and turn around a company through its employee base, or is the HRification making it so difficult to change employees or to change management that you just, you couldn't do the same things? It's more complicated today uh, I, because of the wokeism and the ESG nonsense and, and a lot of these things and the HRization of, of things. But what I found, and most recently, even with, uh, with one of our shipping companies, C-SPAN, when you go in and meet with the people and you explain to them the mistakes that, that were made by the prior management team, uh, here's what I think we need to do, but I need your input as to uh, how do we do this? You know, there's a couple of ways to go. When you go and seek that kind of information, uh, I, I still find employees today, not all of them, but, but the large majority of them, they want to be successful at what they do. They want their company to be successful. They want to be treated fairly. So, so it's, it's a little harder today because particularly in the younger generations, there's a part of the younger generation that I have some respect for in that they want to have more balance in their life. And I think that's okay. It's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Everybody should seek their own. You know, the one mistake we have made is people have described too, too often the American dream is about money. The American dream was never about money to the founding fathers. It was about your ability. If you want to be a blacksmith, be a blacksmith. You want to be a writer, be a writer. If you want to somehow find a printing press and print a paper, do that. If you're successful, great. But that wasn't the focus. The focus was freedom. I think it's great that that a lot of young people today want to balance their outdoor activities or family activities with business. The problem is they have to understand the business still has to function. You know, I want them to be as miserable as I was in my 20s, you know, <laughs> working 80 hours a week. And when you were in management, you want to talk about slave labor, get the 70s, 80s, 90s, whatever. I mean, if you're in management, you had to work 80 hours a week, too bad, or you're gone. Yeah, it wasn't. It was not an option. And, and frankly, if you want to be really successful today, you've got to work hard. That still makes a difference. Those who wake up early, come in early, stay late. There should be a a mental health balance, but you put it in when you're young so that you do gain the experience and you have the stamina when you're younger so that when you're older, you've got the experience that you can level that off with when you lose some of the stamina. And you also, you have to be honest with employees, you know, and that is, you know, you have some really bright young person. We had one back in, in our mid-American company over in the UK. His name was Phil, a PhD, electrical engineering, incredible young man. At the age of about 30, we promoted him to a role that he just thrived in. And we were pretty much targeting him to run that business in a few years. And Phil sat down with us one day and said, David, Craig, I know what you're doing. I really appreciate it. I love working here, but I just need you to know I'm putting every dollar I make aside. And my wife and I are hoping that I can retire from this business when I'm 40. I want to be a teacher. Yeah, no issues. Yeah. He was honest with us. He had a great career till he was 40. He made enough money to be able to step back and become a, a professor and ended up having a great life. That's all doable as long as we talk to each other because everybody doesn't need to be a home run hitter. Baseball teams made up of all Aaron judges probably don't have very good pitching. 
<laughs> so do we blame Phil for the state of our woke universities? I mean, should I call Phil and tell him, like, this is ridiculous. You, can't, you don't even have free speech on most major campuses where this was a bastion of free speech. Your concern is a correct one, but he's actually an exception to that. Yeah, good. Because he had that business experience, and his uh, school over in England is a outlier. <laughs> yeah. Universities are a great example. You talk about something that hasn't evolved. Land-grant universities, most of them were created back in the mid-1800s. Nebraska is where I, where I went to school. Boo. <laughs> they have evolved very little. In fact, you know, I think at some point, uh, universities just have to be completely restructured and changed because, you know, it's funny when you think about the fact that what we're on a, a Zoom link here and video conference, it was invented by universities, but on balance, they're the only institution that doesn't use it. <laughs> Why are we still building big buildings all over the country to house classrooms when probably 85% of classroom study for universities should be done online? The professor that teaches the best statics course in engineering should have his course sold to other, other places. That's the reason prices, in addition to the government being stupid about how they loan money. I think there's a social aspect to college that does matter. I think the last thing we need are a few more incels. I mean, only really look at their computer for education, gratification, or or anything else. And I mean, I have my problems with universities in the, in the sense that they're just where it seems like liberals go to beat up on people, each other, as much as anybody else. We need to be more social. We're getting antisocial. It's part of the problem in politics. That and you can't get past a primary unless you're, you know, super conservative or super liberal. It's a problem. I think most of America, 70% of America is pretty moderate, but they can't get past a primary. Have you found that to be the case? Yeah, absolutely. An individual who I think would have been a great presidential candidate two years ago, and a lot of people would, would have voted for him had he gotten through a primary, he wouldn't even start because he said, David, I cannot win a primary. How do we fix it? You're very savvy in politics and management. It's in both parties' interest not to have an open primary. Yeah. Very few states do. The only way we fix it is citizens have to get involved. And unfortunately, that's the biggest, you know, this whole, this whole nonsense about that somehow it's subhuman to require people to go to a voting place every couple of years to vote, that we have to make it more and more convenient. I think that's, that's a huge mistake. I mean, if, if people don't, frankly, care enough about this country to get an ID and go vote, I'm not sure I want them voting. The ID thing is stupid. I mean, it's just, it, it's stupid to think that well, some people don't have one. I, I guess they don't go to the doctor. Or cash a check. Well, they, yeah, but they also, they also get this, you know, the, the left loves to say, well, it's a hardship on them. You know, they're poor. They're poor people. Well, listen, I grew up in a, in a poor family. Poor people are poor. They're not stupid. They're too poor to get an ID. They have to have an ID to get anything. You know, Ami Horowitz, you ever watch him on YouTube or whatever, where he went to, you know, a minority community, and he's just like, you know, asking people, uh, you know, do you have ID? And they're offended. <laughs> like, what are you, a moron? Of course I have ID. You can't get on an airplane. You certainly can't go in the White House without one. But somehow the single most important thing that a citizen needs to do is too much to ask that they have to actually show up, <laughs> have an ID. If we want to make more participation, we should take the work excuse away for that day. I mean, we've got a holiday for everything. I think veterans would, would not mind at all on a whole, you know, combining that patriotic act to their Veterans Day, poll, you know, or voting day, both in November 
or more Memorial Day or Labor Day or the Fourth of July. There you go. Yeah, we're all for more participation. Just, just stop with the nonsense on both sides of it. You know, the average American they spend a large part of their 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 week and their month and their year taking care of their family, making trying to make sure their kids get a good education, earning a living. You know, when all this nonsense starts going around, a lot of them just don't have time for it. What the parties need to do is actually hold people accountable. You know, this lying, you know, one of the, one of the things that really troubles me today, because I'm, I'm old and I've seen a lot of, my first president was, uh, uh, that I was able to vote for was uh, Mr. Carter. You know, a lot of people equate Joe Biden to Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter, I think, was a very good person. He just was oh, a horrible yeah. ministry. Yeah. Well, he got bogged down in his own campaign promises. Too. I think his promises meant something to him because he's a very moral man. And then he got really bogged down by the uh, Iran hostage crisis and his whole view of nonviolence and America being the beacon light, again, really screwed him up. And Operation Eagle Claw was <laughs> oof. less than good. But his economic decisions, administration, administratively, you know, everything had to come across his desk. But again, he, he was a good man. And I don't think he ever lied to us. I mean, we've, got, we've got an administration today that, first of all, just the talent level of the administration. The Secretary of, of Transportation, if he sent his resume without his name on it to any construction company or engineering company in this country, they wouldn't even interview They him. love him. I mean, they love him. But he's got a $2 trillion investment portfolio in, in, in infrastructure. I know. Has he ever even built a doghouse? <laughs> I, I mean, that's, a tree yeah, house? I don't, the problem that this identity politics, they're not qualifications. Yeah. They're states of being. And we need to get back to, you know, electing people that are quality and, and then expecting them to put really talented people in those jobs. They may have a little different bent on, on how, how they see the world than I do, but just put in talent. We've got to be fair for a second. There's a diverse mix, and, and I would agree. Like The last administration had a casual relationship with the truth as well at times. President Trump saw the truth as he spoke it, whether it was or it wasn't. And that, that was a problem. It's hypocritical for us to say, for me anyway, to say Biden's kind of doing the same thing, and he is, and this has not been a problem in the past, or even with the war in Iraq and, you know, the weapons of mass destruction. Look, this has been, and, and Obama was, oof, he was the best. I mean, that guy, he could spin it, man. I mean, on a dime. You know, I look back at President Trump, I probably agreed with 85% of his policies. Yeah, yeah. But none of his methods. No. And I was not unwilling to say that. One of the problems today is that it seems like people, if they're in favor of someone, they can't acknowledge their right. weaknesses. Right. Bold-faced lying to the American people, no matter which party does it, it's just not what we deserve. And they're citizens. not being called out, David. That's, that's You've the point. You've got mainstream media won't really call it out. I mean, I think Scott Pelley barely, but he did challenge Biden in a way when he, you know, Biden is just like stumbling over the fact that inflation only went up one tick, 8.2 <laughs> to 8.3 or something. That's not bad. It's not spiking. Spiking to what, man? It's at eight. I mean, to 16? What does spiking mean to that guy? Plus, I mean, you know, one of his comments is that it, uh, uh, we've got inflation under control. It was zero this month. Well, oh, it's it, it, trying to mislead people that it, was, it didn't go up versus last month, but it's already at 8.5%. That's what I mean. You know, say, saying, you know, going to Saudi Arabia and Venezuela and Iran to get more oil versus just doing it at home, misleading people. If you actually have a reason as to why you don't want to get more from home, say it. 
tell the American people what your, what your reason is. They're he wouldn't, capable. He of, wouldn't get elected. No, well, that's the point. So this misleading of people for phony agendas and, or, or hidden agendas and that, it didn't start with this president, but it is coming to a, a peak. <laughs> it would absolutely crush Russia if we tapped our energy supplies. I mean this in all sincerity. I wish we would do that and subsidize getting greener as a plan, because there's no plan. Everybody just says they want to be green, and there's no real laid out plan. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I mean, I think she turns in notes on a cocktail napkin. There's no bill. There's no plan that gets us there. None whatsoever. And I mean, it's, it's even worse than just that statement in the sense that any other subject you want to talk about, you could actually say, okay, there's, we got to have a plan. And you'd be right. Energy is the lifeblood of every economy. Mm -hmm. Nothing happens. You can't move a car, an airplane. You can't turn your lights on. You can't stay warm in the winter. You can't cool down in the summer. You can't make pharmaceuticals. Everything about our economy. Fertilizer. Fertilizer, steel, cement. Yeah. The largest emitter as a single industry of CO2 is the creation of cement. The largest product we use in building anything. So- if you're going to attack CO2, and if you believe that it is the, uh, the, the existential threat of the planet, you Go have nuclear. to have a plan. Has to have, you, a, you've got to get China, India, and the rest of the world on board. And B, by the way, if it is the existential threat that some think it is, that shouldn't be that hard because they should see the facts too. The problem is you ask somebody, show me this consensus that says this is what we got to do. It doesn't exist. I'm an engineer. I spent 40 years in the energy industry. And frankly, my former company, MidAmerican Energy, that we sold to Berkshire, is the largest owner of renewable energy in the United States. I'm not an opponent to it. On the other hand, I'll be honest, we wouldn't have built a single megawatt without the subsidies that the government provides. Right. And the reason for that is there's no plan. And if you don't have a plan to, over time, wean us off of fossil fuels while keeping bills affordable for the average American, and then simultaneously building nuclear and other things, which is the only way you actually go to zero CO2. But you have to have, a, it's a massive plan. I mean, people have no idea what haphazard steps we're taking are going to cost them. They're starting to see it. They're starting to feel how they're the, at the pump and that they're, they're heating bills. They're going to see it much more graphically this, this winter because there is no plan. So there, there's step one. We have to require our elected officials and leaders to not just start doing things without a plan. Well, our adversaries have a plan. I mean, you just see Saudi Arabia just stick it to <laughs> President Biden a couple of weeks ago, and they're helping Russia. Everybody made fun of McCain, who I loved and, and voted for twice, wrote him in once, you know, and he'd always call Russia a gas station posing as a country. And they'd make fun of him because he said it over and over and over again. Well, you know what? It doesn't seem like we got it. It doesn't seem, Germany didn't get it. Europe didn't get it. And if they would have got that message, they wouldn't be so cold this winter. Oh, that's right. And, and so you ask yourself, why do countries like China, why are they pushing America so hard to wean off of petroleum and that and destroy our economy? Well, let's think for a minute that China imports 65% of its energy. Yeah. They want the Middle East oil because they know they're going to need it. They want natural gas from all over the world. We're just not playing an intelligent game this whole process. We could be producing 2 million barrels of oil equivalent more today than we are. And we were doing it two years ago. Yeah, we were net exporting. Yeah, and we could be expanding that. And if we expanded that, you would force oil prices down globally. You would actually help the entire world, but also yourself. But again, this is ellessness of, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot on the left. I've sat in meetings and I've listened to some of the uh, 
the folks that think they know what they're doing about running the world saying, we would like to see $200 a barrel oil. We'd like to see $25 per thousand cubic feet natural gas because they think that will cause people to use less. Well, it will. There's no doubt about that. But when you ask them, what's the alternative? And it's interesting. The, the answers I get are, well, frankly, we just think the world would be better off using less. We need the energy. The world needs the energy. There are people on the other side of it. And believe me, the people I know you're talking about, I've been in the room with some of these people too. I mean, Washington sucks. And they can afford it. They can afford $200 a barrel. You and I can afford it. But they're not talking about the human toll here. People will die. Yeah, absolutely. Period. I mean, maybe that's the plan for less CO2 emissions. It's just, just going to let people die at that expensive for energy. And if you do it without a plan, that's exactly what's going to happen. People act like today, you know, you hear this, well, we're going to have 50% of our cars are going to be electric by 2030. Run on coal. Yeah, well, let's just, well, let's assume it's going to happen. Even if you're doing it with coal, where's the electricity coming from? We have a 5% reserve margin nationally today for electricity. Imagine today, there's 276 million vehicles on the roads in America. That's trucks, cars, motorcycles, et cetera. So cut that in half and, and say 150 million of those, which by the way, less than 1% are electric today. So let's say yeah. by 2030, 150 million passenger cars, and they have a 20-gallon gas tank today. Well, if you take the uh, amount of BTUs in a gallon of gasoline, and it's going to take the same amount of energy ultimately to move an electric car that it takes to move a gas car. You're going the same distance. Well, but also, but where's the electricity coming from? If you take those BTUs and say, okay, I need that many more BTUs of electricity to do that, nobody's building additional infrastructure today. Nobody's building power plants to meet that demand. There isn't even a plan to do it. But let's go put plugging stations all over the interstate and, and that, which, by the way, I have just the absurdity of that. There's no agreed common cord plug-in for Category 3 electric vehicles. So what are we going to do? Have 10 of them hanging out there? I mean, it's, it's like a cell phone's. We couldn't just have one cord for all cell phones. We just, we just got to keep screwing people over and over again. Yeah. Now that infrastructure bill, which is just, you know what, another trillion we don't have. Two, uh, two, on top two of, trillion. I'm sorry. My, my bad. Always go up, Dan. I, I got to remind myself. <laughs> now we're over $30 trillion. So our, as interest rates rise, by the way, so does our debt service on $30 trillion. And we're headed towards spending more on debt service than we are the military. We already spend more on our military than, you know, the next 10 countries combined. Where's this coming from? We've got to talk six months and a year. People want to know from you six months and a year down the road. What does this recession look like? Because, I mean, I think I read and I totally agree. We're in one. By all traditional standards, we're in one. We're, we're in a fairly shallow one thus far. But what people don't realize, I think, is so inflation is the big issue here. Inflation was caused by throwing money at COVID. A certain amount of that, you know, if you're going to shut down the economy, you probably have to do something to help people through that. But remember, mm -hmm. that money didn't build anything. It didn't build bridges or, or ports or airports. It just went into people's spending. Mm -hmm. And that's what's fueling. The massive increase in money supply is what's fueling the, the inflation. This issue of I'm part of a shipping company. The backlog in shipping is certainly a different issue, and shipping costs went up. But if, if you actually walk through the math, the backlog in shipping that's now pretty much resolved and prices for shipping are back down to where they were pre-COVID, that isn't causing the inflation. Inflation is being caused by a massive influx of Undoubtedly. dollars all over the world, not just in the U.S. We put $6 trillion in and have two more yet to go in with the infrastructure. 
at least that will hopefully build something. But the uh, Federal Reserve got behind and should have been raising earlier, but they've now getting caught up. They probably have two more significant raises to go. It's going to put us at about four and a half percent from zero. So your point, by the way, that adds, if, if we go to four and a half, the federal government will be paying a trillion dollars more annually for interest, which is substantially more than our, than our military budget. While the Federal Reserve is doing that, our administration, you know, so think of it as a big bonfire. And the Federal Reserve I do. is spraying water on it, trying to calm it down. The administration is spraying gasoline on it by spending money and increased budgets. Again, the, the quote unquote Inflation Reduction Act of a couple months ago, oh. another three quarters of a trillion dollars that doesn't do anything to lower inflation is actually pushing up inflation. And then this irrational energy policy, which is one of the biggest reasons inflation's up, because people, people think about inflation at the gas pump or your, your home heating bill. Everything that's manufactured in this country and around the world has a significant component of energy. You're seeing it reflected there. You then end up with a spiral of wages, which is only fair because people, uh, particularly at the lower and middle income rates, they can't pay for all this without a raise. What's the difference if you made $30,000 two years ago and you're making forty or forty-five now? Your buying power is probably less. With interest rates where they're going to have to be to pull down inflation, and by the way, it's not going to pull down inflation anywhere nearly as quickly as people want because the government's still pushing up inflation by restricting energy flow. So we have this weird, never had a scenario like this where government is actually at odds with reducing inflation. When you go back then again, think that, that globally, $23 trillion of new capital was thrown into the global economy that didn't build anything. It's going to take, so to get to the answer to your question, I think we're going to be in a fairly shallow recession for a while. And at some point, we're going to go off a bit of a cliff and see global slowdown. And I, to be honest, We've got our companies being worried about a stagflation scenario where you go into a deep recession and still have inflation. People talk about 2008 as if the recession started in September of 2008. It did not. It started in November, December of 2007. You could make the point that it was shallow then. From November, December 2007, Bear Stearns was a little blip there in the, in the spring, and then boom. And this could be bigger with the kind of debt we have. I mean, do you agree? Absolutely. Well, that's, that's the fear. I, I think my fear is that somewhere late 2023, early 2024, the whole globe slows to a point where international debt instruments start becoming strained, seriously strained. I mean, you're already seeing you know, high yield debt in this country is up you know, many hundreds of basis points just in six months. And our economy on balance compared to the rest of the world is doing quite well. But the one thing people should not be comforted by, this notion, and I heard the president say it the other day, you can't have a recession when 3.5% unemployment. Well, <laughs> just keep watching. Uh, <laughs> okay. Our unemployment rate is also somewhat artificial in the sense that a lot of people, and, I, and frankly, this is the missing link for me, where did these 5 or 6 million service employees go? Did they all have enough money not to work the rest of their life? They're doctors now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Nigeria, um, <laughs> something they went somewhere. Maybe skateboarding. I don't know. Surfing. Pretty sure they're still here because I mean, as much as people want to complain about our country, we all still know deep down that we're the best place to be. You could ask Brittany Grenier that. I mean, I bet she wishes she never went to Russia. That's not a great place to be. We are. I think when these things happen in 2023, it's the best place to be. It's not to be in companies that were free cash flow negative and borrowing money to buy back stock or pay out executive bonuses. 
where would you want to be? Would you still want to be in energy? Do you think that's always going to be a safe play? Are you going to treasuries? What, what would you do? I do think energy is going to be a very good place to be because when you've got artificial governmental restrictions put on supply, but demand is still going up, that's a pretty good spot to be. Frankly, as a citizen, I think it's horrible. But as an investor, the Energy and Information Agency puts out a, a forecast twice a year, and they're still forecasting greater use of petroleum products in 2050 than we are today. So think about that. Yeah. Question you're asking, I, there's no place I'd rather be than America. Treasury bonds are, are starting to look a lot more interesting, obviously, at 4, 4% than they were at, uh, at zero. But it's also the reason we wrote the book, America's Perspective, is that, you know, hopefully this recession is going to allow people time to think about why is America so extraordinary? How, why is it outperformed every other form of government and country ever existing on this planet? And we're only 5% of the world's population. We have a terrible form of government and, and capitalism is awful, but our form of government and, ca- and capitalism are still the best thing invented. Come up with something better. <laughs> I understand that, that it's awful in a lot of different ways, but it's still the best there is. The problem that I have with, with us you know, there's nothing backing it except our faith and credit. And our adversaries understand that. And that's what they're constantly chipping away at is, you know, faith in America. I worry about, you've got that optimistic point of view, your book, it's great. It's about healing and about like, look, we've been through worse times. There's a civil war we could talk about. There's Jim Crow and all those things were worse times. And the Great Depression. But yeah, it seems like, you know, one more punch to the face and we're either going to start punching back again or we're going to go down. I would agree with you. I mean, I think that's that's the point of all this. People need to understand the reason we came through all of those tough times is because we stayed within our Constitution. We found middle ground. We found compromise between between people. Today, unfortunately, and by the way, you're exactly right, our competitors, China, India and other locations around the, around the world, our freedom of speech gives them an enormous opportunity to affect us. Mm-hmm, yeah. They get freedom of speech too, uh, here, yeah. here, not, not at home, yeah. but here. And so yeah. they're doing everything they can to sow discontent here and criticisms of each party against it, itself. The American people have to step back. And the, one of the negatives is we're allowing these parties to utilize our differences to political advantage, but at the detriment of our country. But your point is correct. You know, at 31 trillion plus in debt, that's 122% of our GDP. Never, yeah. ever has a country our size sustained that level of debt in the, in the history. From zero 20 years ago. Yeah. 22, 22 years, years ago. I mean, yeah. From zero. So we're living on borrowed time. One of the weaknesses of our political system is that we can do really stupid things. And we're we're doing them, but yeah. it doesn't show up immediately because our economy is so big and yeah. the average American is so, so wealthy compared to the rest of the world. But, you know, Greece thought it would never end as well. And there comes a time when confidence is lost because we're not on a gold standard or anything else. You know, nope. uh, money is just printed when the government feels like printing it and deficit spending. And, and other countries have been doing it as well, but we, we've turned it into an art form. Mm. If we keep doing it, it will not end well. We just don't know when that end is. This coming recession could be an opportunity for us to wake up if we don't. And, and the sad part to me is our leaders, they know full well that poor and the lower income, the lower middle income will pay the biggest price. And yet yeah. they're letting it continue. And that's- Yeah, they always do. Is immoral. I, I had somebody make a comment, uh, a presentation I made a couple of weeks ago. And he said, uh, he said, well, you know what, Mr. Sokol? He said, uh, you don't like some of these policies because they're going to make you less rich. 
And he said, you know what? They'll probably make me more poor, but that's okay. And I said, well, I said, I got to tell you, I said, if those are my options, being less rich or more poor, I'm going to go with less rich. But, you know, yeah. I was shocked that yeah. he made this statement because he, he almost, you know, he basically was saying, I'm, I'm happy to be punished as long as you get punished. He's basically saying, I'm happy to be ignorant. Yeah. I mean, he's just ignorant. I mean, you couldn't, you have generational wealth at this point. And, and look, good on you. Well earned. I mean, you've, and lucky. you did things that capitalism values and that's fine. But for somebody that just say, listen, I'm fine with being poor as long as I can make you less rich is just stupid. It's certainly not, not the way our system is structured. No, it's not. Well, yeah, we're getting there. Yeah, give us time. I'm respectful of your time. And I know that, you know, you don't you know, necessarily love doing media and you're doing this not because you need to or, uh, or ego. And you're writing a book because you believe in our country and you want people to believe in the dream again. I hope that you continue to be out there from time to time, especially when and if the recession hits, because you're not the kind of guy that's going to say, I told you so. We need somebody that's going to say, okay, what do we do now? Mr. Fix-It. We need a Mr. Fix-It. That's right. One point, by the way, all the proceeds from the book are going to a not-for-profit to support the American dream. I'm not good at it, which your folks that follow your podcast will recognize but it, no. it needs to be done. We need people to stop being scared of the wokeism and all this other crazy stuff and get out and just get people thinking about why is America extraordinary and, and how do we keep it that way? Everybody, that's your thought of the day. My wife does this to me every once in a while. I have to like list 10 things why I appreciate her. <laughs> so Weekly. So why, Weekly. <laughs> why don't we all just sit down and list a few things that we appreciate about our country and see if that isn't, you know, therapeutic in a way. And if you, can't, if you can't even find a way to do that, then you just have yourself to blame. And there you go. David, where can we find you? Uh, where would you like us to follow you? Twitter presence or just... I'm not a technology guy. We, I'll tell you what we have done, though, is we've, uh, there's a nine-part video series that we've uh, put together as part of the book. They first started coming out last Wednesday. They'll, each piece comes out Wednesdays and Fridays. There's nine of them in total. This isn't propaganda. These we found some noted historians and other things to pull together pieces. They're 12 to 15 minutes each. You can get them on YouTube, American Perspective, Dave Sokol, and, and they'll show up. One comes out each evening on Wednesday and Friday till all nine are out. Two are out already. What's gratifying is you're getting great, great watch. You can also go on uh, freedomworks.com and it'll pop up on there as well. And these are basically a chapter in your book. Yeah, a 12 to 15 minute summary. But by people that hopefully folks will understand or don't have a political uh, hand in the game, they're just trying to make sure you understand the importance of consensus, of the meritocracy system that we have, et cetera, that the founding fathers created, and to challenge them. There's a way to, uh, at, at the end of each one, there's a way to contact us and send us thoughts. And, and people have been generous to do that. Frankly, appreciate the dialogue we're getting back. I really appreciate your time. I hope that as things change for the economy, we have our titans of Wall Street uh, supposedly listen to this show because, you know, they do God's work up there. Maybe they'll be listening to you. And maybe you'll come back as a returning champion in the latter half of next year and talk about where we are, give an update to the economy and what the best long idea is and the best short idea, you know, because that's what we do too. (laughs) First of all, I appreciate you having me on. And secondly, I really hope I'm wrong about a deep recession. Trust me. You're not. Nobody wants it not to happen more than I, but we don't stop spending. I'm afraid that's not going to be likely. Yeah, totally agreed. David Sokol, thank you very much for your time and uh, thanks for all your effort on behalf of our country. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it. All right. I I, I know that you have a 1230, so I'm going (laughs) to... 
Well, so I heard you oh, had a twelve thirty. Monica, so I, you were uh, much more thoughtful. There you go. <laughs> I did the best I could. There you go. You know, I could have spent two hours with you. There are so many things we didn't talk about, but thank you very much. Well, and thanks. Thanks for what you're doing. I don't understand why colleagues of yours in the in the media they just are falling in line with nonsense. And I, I don't mean that they should agree with everything I say or you say, but they don't even ask good questions anymore. You and I may not have agreed on everything, but we can respectfully move on a little bit. These guys do is they don't disagree with you until you're off the air, and That's then true. they just tear you a new asshole. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. I've heard it said to me, well, this is my program. I'll do whatever I want. Well, now I have my own. Yeah, <laughs> good for you. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. Thank you, guys.